Greetings. This is Douglas Skimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. I'm joined today on the podcast by Grady Burkett, Portfolio Manager on Diamond Hill's global and international strategies. Grady has been at Diamond Hill since 2014, and prior to joining the firm, he worked at Morningstar in a variety of roles. Grady is joining me on the podcast today to discuss the international markets and provide some insight into the inner workings of this broad and diverse market. Specifically, we'll dive into a discussion on valuations and what Grady and his team are seeing in the markets, as well as some of the nuances of international investing. As we continue to work through these unprecedented times, I ask for your understanding for any sound issues that may arise. As always, stay safe and stay healthy. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Grady Burkett. Grady, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, We've spent time talking about various areas of the market on this podcast, ranging from securitized asset to high yield to domestic equities. Today's conversation is going to focus on your area of expertise, international equities, and determining valuations across the globe. So let's start off with a brief recap of what we've seen in international equity markets just over the past decade or so. Well, thanks, thanks, Doug. The, the, obviously, there have been a lot of um, a lot of issues around the world, and um, interestingly, if you look at over ten years, though, it turns out that for equity investors, as far as returns go, a lot of it's actually been noise. So we spend a lot of time looking at individual hotspots and countries and regions and politics, um, but when you really extend the time horizon, you end up with, with with a lot of noise. But I think the three biggest factors that have affected equity returns throughout the world are low inflation, low interest rates and slow in global economic growth. And one important piece of information I'm trying to understand as a portfolio manager is what's my required rate of return for a business that I'm considering adding to the portfolio. And so you know, that's really a function of opportunity cost. And so when I think about what's a global equity investor's opportunity cost, you could just look at the broadly diversified uh, global market index. And so over the past 10 years, we've had really good returns, especially considering how low inflation has been. So the world return is about 10% annualized over the past decade. And we've had uh, really strong returns from US and Japan. Those are in the low teens. Um, We've had nice upper single digit returns out of India, China, Australia, their major equity market indices. And then the rest of the world generally is generating mid single digits called five to 7% annualized returns. Obviously we've had some, some blow ups and some disappointments, but broadly speaking, the big markets have done pretty well. Um, now, these returns are in local currencies, so U.S. investors have done a little worse as you translate those non-U.S. returns into U.S. dollars. Um, and so what I'm trying, again, getting back to this cost of understanding my cost of equity or what my requirement, my discount rate is for a business that I'm valuing, um, I look back and think about the three components of this, of this return we've generated in the last 10 years the markets have generated. And obviously, that's earnings growth dividend yield, and then changes in the market valuation multiples are what drive those returns. And so when we started this 10-year period back in 2011, um, we had a dividend yield about 2.5%. And over the next 10 years, when you look at the broadly diversified market index, the earnings growth from that is annualized a little over 4%. So you're looking at about 6.5% of return driven by fundamentals, by, by earnings growth, and dividend yield. And then the rest of it, the balance of it has come from you know, valuation multiple expansion. So we have had a pretty big component of the total return come from just valuation multiples kind of stretching out. And obviously that's a function of you know, lower bond yields, 
Um, so the risk free rates lower, inflation's been low. And so that's allowed these valuation multiples to stretch out some. So looking forward, kind of where we're at now, um, you know, we've got a dividend yield that's more around the 1.7, 1.8%. So we're a little under 2% globally. Um, we've had the valuation multiple that stretch out we're around 20 times forward earnings. And that's after assuming a pretty strong earnings recovery uh, in 2021. Um, so it's a little hard to see the valuation multiple you know, expanding significantly beyond this over the next 10 years. Who knows? I mean, that's a guess, but it's a little hard to see it. Um, and then you probably can expect earnings growth. I don't see any reason why the last 10 years won't be a good base rate for the next 10 years. So I think four to 5% earnings growth is a pretty good expectation. So when you take that together, you know, you're probably looking at a six to 7% total return for global equities over the next 10 years. I think that's the right base case forecast in a way. And so getting back to how that kind of influences what I think about as far as holdings in the portfolio, obviously, if I have a stock and the expected return, you know, we're, we're evaluating business valuations and then comparing that to market prices. So if I have a expected return below 6%, that's not really a holding that, that we want to own. Um, on the other hand, I don't need to take excessive risk to try to generate a 15% return from some business holding a business in the portfolio um, because I know my required rate of return is 6 to 7%. Um, and so that's kind of how I use these, these expected returns and think about that as far as portfolio management. There are subsectors amongst the areas of equity investments in the international market, from developed markets and emerging markets to countries and regions. You know, you can layer the growth value dynamic on top of these subsectors, which leaves investors with a broad swath of variables to work through. How do you approach the market and determine what the most relevant aspects are to investing? Yeah, for us, it's really a bottoms-up process. And I do, I think it simplifies the analysis for us, really, when you look at things through the lens of a company um, that's operating in a particular country. And so on the international team, there are five of us. Um, we're actually organized more by sectors than by uh, geography, but we can look at anything we want to. Um, and so obviously, for us, the most relevant aspect to our process is, intrinsic, is estimating intrinsic value. Um, it's central to everything we do. And this is a function of a company's uh, future free cash flow discounted uh, to present value. And so really everything we're doing, so we'll look at a broad, you know, we all, we're all constantly looking at individual businesses. And then when we start to analyze a business, we'll start to look from the inside out and understand, okay, what's it mean that I operate in the UK? Or what does, you know, what do changes, changing policies uh, in China's approach to the healthcare system mean for this particular uh, healthcare provider in China. Um, and so that's the way we really look at it. I think it does simplify the analysis than trying to come down from the top first and then trying to figure out which business within that kind of top-down view uh, we want to look at. So you mentioned intrinsic value, and that's you know something that's a hallmark of our investment approach at Diamond Hill. Um, taking that into consideration, talk to me about where you see you know, the inter international markets today with regards to price to intrinsic value and where some of the current opportunities may reside. Yeah, it's been really an interesting year because, you know, we started January 2020 um, with discounts about as narrow as we've seen them. So discounts were pretty narrow, but you really didn't see any kind of like um, material downside risk to the global economy. The economy had been slowing, but you didn't see a substantial risk. And we were just kind of in that late cycle, slowing growth mode. Um, but then of course we had the pandemic and that changed everything. And so 
we did see a substantial short-term decline in obviously economic activity and therefore earnings. So we saw a big dramatic drop in corporate earnings um, you know, in the second quarter and third quarter of last year in particular. Um, and then we also had a substantial decrease in equity valuations. Now, of course, um, an intrinsic value of business is based on cash flows generated you know, many years out. It's not just this year or next year. And so our estimates of intrinsic values didn't fall nearly as far as near-term corporate earnings or market prices. And so all of a sudden, we went from seeing a, a scenario where the discounts were fairly narrow to the widest we, we've seen since, we, since the inception of the international portfolio. Um, now, since then, of course, we've had a really strong uh, rebound in, uh, in equity prices. And I, I think the right now consensus is for world earnings to increase 60% in 2021 over 2020. And so, you know, the market's gotten ahead of that expected earnings rebound. So again, we're kind of back up to where we were as far as valuations go to where we were at the start of 2020. The discount's just not particularly wide. It's actually fairly narrow right now across the portfolio. Um, in terms of where we're seeing opportunities and where we're not, I mean, a lot of it really is kind of business by business right now. Unfortunately, normally over the last four or five years, I've been able to say, oh, Brexit has created some opportunity in the UK or um, you know, the trade war between the US and China has created some opportunity in China because their, their economy is also slowing in tandem with this. Or you know, there's been very Mexico, the issues with Mexico, the election in Brazil. So there's been various, the oil in Canada. But right now, really at a country level, I can't point to any specific opportunity. Um, now, at an industry level, uh, pharmaceuticals, actually, it's interesting. The discounts have widened quite a bit uh, over the past year in, uh, in, in, in pharmaceuticals. Um, financials have been you know, reasonably attractive for a while, although the discount has narrowed a lot recently with the expected recovery in, in uh, economic activity. Um, and then the one area where I'd say uh, we're seeing you know, the least amount of opportunities is technology. And we are finding individual business op opportunities, investment opportunities, but a lot of these industries just look pretty stressed, particularly software, uh, the semiconductor uh, companies, the discounts are extremely narrow, if they're at all. So let me take you back, if I may, to let's say March, April of 2020. And I've asked this question of a couple of the analysts, you know, when we saw what was happening in the markets and in the world, and we're always based on, as we just talked about, you know, intrinsic value, long-term investment horizons. How are you able to kind of make it through those days when the fundamentals have completely gone out the window? It's all technicals. Like, are you aggressively adjusting your intrinsic value or do you stay the course knowing that hopefully, and, and thankfully it's a short-term disruption, but it is still a disruption. How do you incorporate that into your estimate of intrinsic value when you see events? Hopefully we never see it again, but we see events like we did in March and April. Yeah, and interestingly, I remember in 2009, people calling that kind of a once-in-a-lifetime type event. And now I've had two once-in-a-lifetime type events just in my professional career, which I think is fascinating. But the other thing is, like, to your point on the behavioral side of it, you know, we saw at one point the portfolio was down. It, it dropped 11 percentage points. I mean, we lost 11% of portfolio value in one day. And so, you know, that's that can be pretty... Um, that can affect your behavior, certainly as investors. So I think you have to just keep tying it back to, you know, what you think the fundamentals of the business are going to be over the next year, how you think the business will recover, whether they can recover, first of all, whether they can recover, then how you think they'll recover, and just kind of incorporate that into your discounted cash flow model, your valuation, 
and that can help keep you grounded. Now, as far as the level of activity at the time, yeah, there were certain businesses uh, we owned that uh, gave us concern. So uh, we owned uh, Copa, which was a Latin American airline, and we spent a lot of time, probably um, a disproportionate amount of time, understanding their access to capital, their balance sheet, how the cash flows revolve over time. And uh, we did hold it throughout, you know, through the down cycle and into the to the market recovery. Um, but that was certainly businesses we reassessed. We thought, well, we we probably don't need to own this business now um, because you know we were we were concerned with capital structure um, and going forward what what the recovery rate for business travel in particular would be, which is important to Copa. Um, but usually, what you what you end up doing is you say, okay, so there's some near term hit to these fundamentals. Um, and then over the long run, you just kind of model on a, a trajectory of recovery. And then you start to just look at, okay, what's the discount relative to my estimated intrinsic value? If it's widened a lot and we still have confidence in the business, that's a time to, to buy more of that business. So you might have a business you have less conviction in and you might reallocate into that, that business where you feel more comfortable with your intrinsic value estimate. So that's, some, that's an example of where that activity can happen during a market downturn. Now, one thing is in the international strategy, we generally stay fairly fully invested. And so we're not the type of investor that can just redeploy cash into equities in order to see broad market sell-offs. It, it'll be a function of like, are there places in the portfolio where we might want to make some adjustments? We've drilled down into, you know, the security example to, you know, the discussion of intrinsic value. I'm going to pull you back out and let's look at the bigger picture, the macro picture. And so, you know, the intervention of central banks across the globe in an effort to thwart the damage that was brought on by the pandemic um, it's going to come to an end at some point. Uh, you know, as we turn the corner in the battle against COVID, uh, more and more vaccines are coming online. Where do you see the current state of the global economy? And do you believe a rebound will be similar to expectations in the U.S., i.e. pent-up demand from quarantines and lockdowns driving global demand and productivity? I generally think the sharper the decline uh, that we saw last year for an individual country, probably usually the sharper the recovery we'll see. Um, and so I think there are certain countries where, as we see um, lockdowns ease, um, we'll see a lot more uh, economic growth out of these countries. And we've also had certain countries like Mexico, Brazil, some of the Latin American countries that have set, saw a pretty sharp decline in, uh, in, in GDP last year. I would expect a pretty sharp rebound. Um, other countries, China really actually grew in 2020. So they will see a recovery of, you know, they will see growth and probably some of the strongest growth in the world has been the case for a while, but I wouldn't expect a big snapback there. Um, but I, so I think next year, I mean, the IMF is projecting five and a half percent global growth. This last year, 2020, um, we had, um, you know, a three and a half percent decline in global GDP, which is, by the way, another fascinating thing because three and a half percent sounds like a very small number, but everything felt really big and fast and dramatic when we were happening as far as earnings declines and then stock price declines. But really, global activity, economic activity declined 3.5% last year. Um, so again, that enough projecting 5.5% globally this year, and then you'll see some variances within countries. Um, beyond that, it's going to come down to productivity growth, you know, how, how productive we are as people, how many people are in the, in the labor force, and those are pretty slow-moving static numbers. So I expect, you know, three, four years down the road, we'll fall back to kind of the global growth trend of 3 to 4%. In our conversations preparing for the podcast, you've mentioned both operating margin and revenue growth as keys to evaluating businesses. What are some of the key components that you're looking at when analyzing these two measurements? 
Yeah, I think that first coming up with sort of a base rate, looking at the history for the company and understanding how revenue growth has evolved over time, the sources of the revenue growth. So how much of it is organic, how much is inorganic, how much investment they've had to make to generate that revenue growth. Also, obviously within the growth, we have price and volume, how much of their growth is coming from their ability to raise prices. Um, and then how, and then more important, the most important part is how sustainable do we think this revenue growth is going forward? So have there been things that have changed in the industry that would cause this revenue or within the company that would cause the revenue growth path to, to, to differ, deviate from what it's been in the past? Um, I, the longer history, the longer operating history you have for a company and the less change you have within that company, the easier it is to make those kind of forecasts. But of course, what you really want to do if you want to try to, you know, it, it's, it's really ideal to understand where things are going to change relative to in the past to get a sense of, you know, what intrinsic value might look like compared to what the market expects. On the operating margin side, there are a couple of ways to look at it. You can look at it from a standpoint of um, fixed costs versus variable costs, and just to give you an understanding of how uh, much operating leverage is in the business. Obviously, if you have an operating business, so getting back to COPA, you have a business that had some, some financial leverage. It didn't look like too much until their revenues went to nearly zero, um, but they also had substantial operating leverage and obviously revenue cyclicality. And so when you start to combine those things, you really have to think about those and what, the, what that business will look like in a downturn. The other way to look at operating margins is what types of investments is this company making? So for instance, for, for a company like, uh, like Taiwan Semi, uh, depreciation is a huge part of its operating cost base. And so that just means that it's a highly capital intensive firm. And then that kind of gives you a way to start on like, what's the most important part of this business that I should be analyzing? On the other hand, you take a company like uh, Facebook, even though they are cap somewhat capital intensive now, but where R&D, sales and marketing is a huge part of the investments that they're making to sustain that business's um, competitive advantage. And it just kind of directs you in that manner. And one other point I want to make, again, operating margin can hide certain things. So what you really want to see is like what's happening underneath that business that's causing the operating margin to be what it is and what could cause it to change going forward. And I'll give you a quick example that just literally happened in this earnings report uh, for Google where they just split out. They have a, they have a business unit that uh, consisted of their advertising revenue uh, and their uh, cloud services. And originally that was all bundled into one you know, reporting segment and they just split out their cloud services from their advertising business service revenue. And what you found out, we thought the cloud business was marginally unprofitable, but what we found out is they've been, you know, last year they lost, they generated an operating loss of almost $6 billion from that cloud business. And so all of a sudden that shifts your way of thinking about once that cloud business hits scale, you can say, well, eventually the, my operating margin assumption is probably too low for this company now because that cloud business is eventually going to not be such a drag on the overall margin. So those are the types of things. Companies are always making investments. I mean, you if you have a company that's not making investments for growth, they're not going to grow and you should model that in. But you need to understand, you know, what part of their cost structure is for these growth investments and what part is just to maintain the ongoing uh, business structure. Investors in U.S. companies are focused on domestic government policy, potential tax code changes. In the international market, investors need to understand and evaluate the impact of multiple governments, debt levels and taxes, a very a broad array of different components. How does an investment manager in the international space follow these various sources of data? Yeah, actually, it's interesting now because there are probably too many sources of information for all investors. And so, um, 
for, there, there are some quick ways to get some um, kind of high level data for me as an investment manager and Bloomberg gives us a lot of access and there's no question about that. But there's no data source that I can't get by myself and I can really just start by Googling, um, you know, what are the telecom uh, regulatory policies in the UK? And that will give me a lot and it'll, it'll, it'll direct me right to the regulators Opcom's website and then I'll have all the information as an investor that I need to understand what the regulatory environment is for a telecom company in the UK, for example. Now, sometimes it's harder. It, the hard part is actually figuring out what matters for the business and spending the time to understanding what might change um, in the regulatory environment. And so, but as far as country data, I mean, there's every country has plenty. I mean, the US has FRED, which gives you plenty of access to all the economic data you need. Um, you can, and, and on OECD gives you plenty of great data on individual countries. IMF gives great forecasting data. Um, you can go on and on and find all this wonderful data out there. But I'd say for me, us, because we're looking at the business level, we're looking from the bottom up. The biggest source of data is right at the company website, uh, reading through the filings, um, and then going out, understanding who the competitors are, reading through their information, how they're competing, um, talking with the, the investor relations team, um, going to conferences, meeting people who understand these companies better than us. And it really does happen more at the individual business level than, than the top-down aggregate level. Grady Burkett, Portfolio Manager on the Diamond Hill International and Global Strategies. I want to thank you for joining me. It's been uh, very informative and hopefully not too painful for you. And, uh, you know, we'll see you again soon, I hope. Yeah, I always enjoy talking with you, Doug. Thanks so much. Thank you. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.